Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm the host, Spencer Martin, from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I have been here with Andrew Vance over the past few months, but today I'm just going to do a mini episode breaking down the World Road Race Championships, going through the events of the race and how Evanapol won it, as well as touching on the Matthew Vanderpool disaster. And then I'll sit down with Andrew on Friday, and we can talk about uh, some bigger picture things. I know there's been a few... Uh, pieces of feedback and complaints about, well, I listen to the podcast and I don't exactly know what happened in the race. I totally understand that. I think Andrew and I want to uh, maybe talk about some more esoteric things than just exactly what happened. And I used to do solo breakdowns of races. So this is kind of returned to the original form of the podcast while also preserving the conversations with Andrew. And it kind of frees us up to uh, to talk about some other stuff. So if you want to know exactly what happened, here is your spot. If you want some bigger picture discussion, Friday with Andrew is definitely the podcast for that. Backing up, Remco Evenepoel wins the Men's World Road Race Championship with a, a pretty stunning gap over uh, Christophe Laporte, who won out of the peloton, with Michael Matthews behind him and then Wout Van Aert behind him. Uh, Two-minute, 21-second gap, which is ridiculous for Worlds. I mean, I can't remember the last time I've seen a World Championships won by this margin. Um, part of that is just because of how the race played out. I mean, once Evan Pohl was up the road and clear, the peloton had you know, the Belgian squeeze on them. They had Van Aert sitting in there. No one in the right mind is going to pull Van Aert to the line. So it kind of uh, kills any pace or motivation in that group, which extends that gap that Evanapol had. Setting that aside, I mean, this was a really impressive ride, really impressive. To go from the initial attack happened at 75 kilometers, and then he went solo at 25 kilometers to go, um, which used to be almost unbelievably long. But, you know, the way Evanapol rides, when he was clear, he looked so smooth. He looked so comfortable on that bike. There was no doubt in my mind that, uh, that he was going to win. I mean, even when he was in that group with 75K to go, they immediately pull out, you know, like a 50-second gap on the peloton behind. You just knew it was game over. There's no one in that group who could beat him. He can drop everyone. No one can drop him. And he can ride at sustained power for a really, really long time, fairly comfortably. So that was a perfect situation for him to win from. He's doing things that, you know, I don't know if we've ever really seen before. The closest analog would maybe be Matthew Vanderpool two years ago. But Matthew Vanderpool looked like he was working really hard. You know, you'd see... Uh, like a Torino Adriatico stage, I believe, in 2021, where Vanderpool went from 50k out. You know, it's just an unbelievable effort. And then Tade Pagacar almost reels him, reels him in at the end, but he stays away for the win. You know, Vanderpool, you were like feeling the pain through the TV. Evanderpool, it, it does. It looks easy to him. It looks like he's going at 200 watts, just like out for an easy ride or a medium hard ride, while everyone else is losing time, losing time behind him. Um, it's really stunning stuff to see. I, I don't know if I've seen anything like it since you know like Cancellara uh it's it just really really impressive riding but even Cancellara I mean yeah just very few times that you would see him go that far out you know, I'm thinking of like even let's say Tom Boone and I believe that was 2012 Perry Roubaix maybe 2013 where he went from I think it was 50k out you know that was a really long way out that seemed impossible at the time and then Evanapol just keeps extending what we think is possible for a solo rider. But I'll get into that a little bit at the end of the episode about like why we're seeing more and more of this. But to start to just to give people a big picture view, the race starts just south of Sydney. Um, it, it was kind of two loops. It was like, I guess, a run into a bigger loop where they went straight down the coast. They went up Mount Kira, which is like maybe an eight kilometer climb, five and a half percent with 30, 30K into the race, still 230K to go. 
basically by the time they crest it. So I thought this is a nothing burger climb. You know, nothing's going to happen here. We're way too far from the finish. It's just going to be to establish the alert break. Nothing to see here, folks. Um, I was totally wrong. Um, the pace was hot from the gun. We went down that coast towards Wollongong really fast. Uh, the, the break did get away and get a got a gap, but we were seeing, you know, immediately we saw Matthew Vanderpool dropped, abandoned race. I, I couldn't believe it. I, was like, well, I thought he was one of the favorites to win. Uh, we would find out later that he was arrested the night before and was at the police station until 4 a.m., uh, that's that's not a recipe for success for uh, for a really hard race the following day. So in retrospect, it makes sense. But at the time, I was like, what the hell's going on? How, how is this possible? How did it get dropped? So they get to Mount Kira. Uh, the, it starts about 230K to go. And immediately we see like, well, this isn't something. Something's amiss or something's going different from how I thought it would go. Pavel Sivakov from the French team just gets to the front and starts drilling it, absolutely drilling it up the climb. The break has about a six and a half minute gap. They get towards the top of the climb. You know, it was, I was actually having a hard time telling what was going on here because I just felt like the camera was not focused on the front of the Peloton. We were just flying around. We we're back of the Peloton groups. We didn't know where they were. The breakaway, which had Scott McGill, an American, super impressive ride from him. Um, He's on, I guess it's it's wildlife generation. It's like a U.S. professional team. Um, I would I would almost classify it as a high-end amateur team that just has a professional license. But to be in the break uh, at this race is super impressive. So immediately I'm thinking, well, that, this is interesting. We got McGill up the front. Uh, he's on the climb looking good. But I couldn't quite see what was going on in the Peloton. But we crest the climb. We're, we're up and over, and the descent was really fast. I noticed this, noticed this in the women's race the day before. It's just a really fast descent where gaps can open. 214K to go, we get down to the bottom of the descent and there's a split in the Peloton and it's hard to tell what's going on, but we can see France is still just ripping the front, ripping the pace of the front. I mean, just a furious pace. And once we get back down to the flats with about 209K to go, we see that they have like a three minute gap on the main Peloton. It's this front group of maybe 20 to 30 riders that have just cracked off the front. I mean, really must have... A, climbed really fast, and B, just ripped that descent to get a three-minute gap on the Peloton. And they've decreased the gap to the to the breakaway from six and a half minutes at the start of the climb to about two, two and a half minutes at this point. So really just unbelievably fast. Uh, and then they have Tade Pogacar, Wout Van Aert, uh, still being just driven by the French team with, with Pavel Sivakov in there. And, and I... I you know, this was like fantastic and interesting, uh, but I still don't totally understand the French team's tactics. I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. Um, eventually, the German team behind in the, in the drop peloton is just, they get to the front and increase the pace to so pull in this escapee group. Another, I'm a little confused. I guess they didn't have anyone up there. So the, the rule is, if you don't have anyone in the break, you got to chase. But who who is Germany working for? I did not understand this. I mean, A, to miss the move for a team like Germany without uh, a favorite is really bad. And then, and then to to chase it. I mean, I'd almost say just just let the cards fall where they may and, and don't do work for these people because Evanapol's in that group. And Evanapol was in, I guess, technically a, a good spot because his teammates, he had Peter Siri and Wout Van Aert, are up in that uh, the middle group, the front peloton. So he's sitting back, doesn't doesn't have to work. But yeah, maybe maybe Evanapol was transferring money into the German riders' bank accounts to get them to pull this back. He must have been panicking slightly. But as soon as the front peloton sees that Germany's working so hard, they realize, oh, we're we really going to hold them off for two hundred and. 
10 kilometers, you know, that's, that's a really long ways to, uh, to be holding off a, a full strong Peloton or fairly full. Uh, so France with, uh, Pavel Sivakov kind of splits a group off the front of the 20 to 30 rider group and, and groups that big generally have a really hard time working together. It's, you know, the bigger group you get doing anything, the harder it is to find consensus. So you know, like a four or five or six person breakaway is ideal. Once you get above 10, it starts to fall apart and you get you have diminishing returns and you're actually going slower than if you had five really motivated riders because no one can agree on who needs to do the work. If there's 20 riders, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I can just sit back here and freeload. But the problem is 15 people are thinking that. So the five people who are working get really frustrated. And that's exactly what happened here. Um, Sivakov, Siri, and a few other riders just kind of uh, crack off the front and actually go and, and bridge up to the break. Interesting. I, I really like this for Belgium because they get a rider up the road so they don't have to work. They can sit back without any responsibility in the peloton. France, in theory, I guess it's good. And they also have Ben O'Connor. I, I should note that. Really strong GC rider who then bridged up to the breakaway, which had Luke Blapp, his, his Australian teammate. So they're in a strong position on paper, but we still have 150K to go, seven and a half minutes. We're going into a circuit, which it's really hard for brakes to stay away on circuits. Uh, the, the pace in the peloton just tends to be really high. You know, O'Connor and Sivakov would be riders that I would have liked to be back in the peloton to Mark Evanepoel. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that later when this move goes. But, you know, at the time, it was we were all a little excited watching it live. I was like, oh, wow, are these guys going to stay away from the wind? But no, they were never going to stay away. They didn't have a chance. And I thought it burned a lot of of matches from O'Connor and Sivakov, particularly who who could have done done well back in the peloton. So flash forward uh, about 80k, like 76k to go, uh, just to show you how fast this pace has been. The gap to the break is has dropped from seven and a half minutes to a minute and 41 seconds. So that's showing you once they get onto this short circuit. And I should have mentioned this earlier. There's a long circuit that goes up Mount Kira at the beginning, and then they they descend into town. Once they're in Wollongong, they're doing, it's like a 17 kilometer circuit, 16, 17 kilometers with a short one and a half kilometer climb. It's called Mount Pleasant. Um, very steep though. And they're just doing it over and over and over again. And city circuits, I don't totally know why it's, I guess it's just the the mental aspect of going around in a circle where the, the pace in the peloton tends to be so high. And you know, that shows because the gap dropped from seven and a half to a minute and 41 seconds. So the pace is just unbelievably high, almost terminal velocity for those 80 kilometers. Canton Pachet from France gets to the, the ascent of Mount Pleasant with 76K to go, attacks at the front. You know, and he's immediately marked by a Belgian rider, which is just smart because if a move goes, Belgium wants a rider up the road because then they don't have to work and maybe Hermans can win the race. You know, I think maybe back in the Peloton, I you can, if you look at that, there's a newsletter out uh, that's for everyone. It's a free version. So there's a link in the show notes. You can click on it and see all the visualizes I'm talking about. But Van Aert just watched, watches them go and then starts looking around in the Peloton. You know, perhaps the thought, the prevailing thought was, this is pretty far out. It's almost 80 kilometers to go. Um, this isn't a move with like serious riders. Um, and we see this a lot at world championships where I'm thinking of like Richmond, where there was like a move with 56, 50 to 60 K to go that looked promising at the time, ended up not staying away. So maybe that's what was going on in the minds of the riders back there. But 
this is cycling 2.0 times have changed you got to be a little bit more attentive um, we flash forward just like a few hundred meters Evanapol sees Van Art balk not going the move and he must realize well this is my chance because if Van Art's not in this move and I get in this move Van Art can't chase me and if Van Art, Van Art can't chase me no one in their right mind is going to work with Van Art to chase me down so Evanapol reads this perfectly it's like a read option like he sees Van Art not move no he should knows he should move and he immediately just jumps on the wheel of the last rider in that little split group and what's really you have to keep in mind when watching races like this on steep it's like a 14 percent grade not very long but everyone looks pretty close together there'll just be little gaps between the riders between the groups and you think well that's not bad you can once you get up and over you can close that down but it's like an accordion effect everything's just bunched up on the climb once you get up and over you know, a five meter gap between riders just gets really stretched out. You know, it will go out to, to 30 meters, 40 meters. It's just really just split second decisions decide whether you make these splits or not. So there, I guess, yeah, that's using split a lot, but split second decisions decide if you, what group you're in. Um, Evanapol, once they get to the really steep part, does a great job of just powering up that. Make sure he's in, make sure he makes sure he's in that front group. Van Art still behind, you know, the race is lost right here. This is the winning move. Um, and I doubt very many people knew it at the time. They get to the top of the climb, Vanderpoel's in fifth or sixth wheel, um, super comfortable. It's maybe, it's not not a big gap. It's maybe four or five seconds back to that Van Ark group. But little do they know it, that's too much. Because once that front group gets up and over the steep part, uh, France, which has Roman Baudet in the group, just starts drilling it really blows that gap out i guess for bardet um in my in my, mis in my opinion huge mistake you, you know the rule of racing is if remco evan pulls in a group do not work if he's in there you're sitting on i mean it's actually unbelievable in retrospect they would do this uh but the key thing in here is belgium has had such an easy day up to this point they have multiple riders in this group with Evanapol, and they can have those guys just pull on the front you know it's it's really just worked out perfectly perfectly for them along with France that's a lot of firepower I mean you flash forward 10 K's and they have about a minute gap on the peloton you know the race is over right here um it's it's unclear to me if the peloton realizes it or not at this point theory put forth in the comments of the of my recent newsletter is that with radios there's no race radios at international racing which is I kind of like because it just makes it more of like an old school you have to have a better racing instinct and I think it favors attacking riding versus conservative riding because of this exact reason. I mean, this group gets a minute and 10K and the race is over. Maybe if there's race radios at a, in a trade team race that the directors are yelling at the peloton, like, you have to close this down right now. Evana pulls in this group. France is working in this group. Close this down. You know, and maybe they do close it down, but... Uh, the, the question I would levy is, what did they think was going to happen? If maybe they didn't know Remco Evanapol's up there. Now, that, that's possible. But even with Bardet in France, that gap is going out. And if Belgium has riders in there, you know, they're one of the strongest teams. And at this point in the race, probably the strongest team because they haven't done anything. They've just been sitting on. Y you have to be really concerned about that back in the peloton. So... And maybe these are like house cats, like modern riders haven't raced without race radios for so long. They've lost the ability to read races and react in real time. They're waiting for direction over the intercom into their ear. If they don't get it, they make huge mistakes. It's like a famous story of it's fam famous in my mind, famous story of 
think it was a 2008, no, 2009 tour of California. Levi Leipheimer is the favorite to win. Uh, Chris Horner is on that team. I think it was the Astana. Yeah, it was that Astana team during the Lance comeback. A break gets up the road. Um, it was a rainy day, stormy day. No one in the Peloton can hear anything through the radios. Radios aren't working. And the break would have won the overall. They would have gotten so much time. Horner realizes this and has the Astana team pull them back or at least limit the gap and saves the day because Horner's an old school racer and knows what to do in those situations. You know, Horner's a generation or two. He's two generations above people Evanipol's age. So it's possible that these guys have just forgotten how to race naturally without radios. So I love it. I, I, I frankly have no problems. Maybe there's like a safety concerns where they can't tell them dangers in the roads, but also these are circuit races. So you know exactly what's coming up in the road because you've seen it 15 times before. But this is like, this is a perfect example of why uh, international racing is different and more maybe more fun than regular trade team racing because a group with a maybe the best rider in the world can get up the road and no one reacts quickly enough. You know, and at this point, I was up watching this live and I'm thinking, well, this is over because who in the peloton behind would pull back Evanipol in the right mind? Yeah, that wouldn't make sense because you have Wout Van Aert sitting on your wheel. And even with France up there, okay, you have also Christophe Laporte sitting on your wheel. What are, what are the odds you're going to beat both of those guys in a sprint? And then what I think would have happened is if, if a team really went to the front and drilled it right here, uh, let's say Holland. Holland has Vanderpool in the race. They're motivated. They pull this back. Van Arch is going to attack you. I think that's what the plan was. Um, we saw he was the strongest rider in this group on Mount Pleasant. Strongest rider in this race on Mount Pleasant. The guy was absolutely flying. You know, I think if they work to pull pull back Evanipol here, Van Arch just hits him with the one two and is gone. And they have the same problem all over again. So Belgium put everyone in a pinch. I mean, this was like picture perfect racing. Um, I'm thinking, you know, it's funny cause you can look at this group. It's pretty big. I'd say 15 riders off the front. You think, well, how can Evanipol win from that? You know, one out of 15 and he can't sprint, but his course is hard enough. You know, where the question should be, how and it shouldn't be, how is he going to win this? But how does he not win this? Because he can drop everyone in this group on this parkours. He doesn't have to sprint. And what's their plan? You know, maybe your plan could be get out in front of them. Hope that when he attacks, you have enough of a buffer that you can latch on to him. I, I think a lot of riders' plan was go with him. Um, we saw Lutsenko try. We saw how flawed that plan was. You know, no one could stay with this guy um, up and over repeated attempts of Mount Pleasant. So, you know, I just was confused why they were working. You know, if Evanipol's in the move, you shouldn't be working at this point in his career. He is unstoppable in these situations. Um, he gets to around. Sorry, I messed up in the opening. I said 25K to go. I meant 35K to go. Um, kind of a, I think, real, really savvy attack. He didn't wait until Mount Pleasant. He, he used like a high-speed, twisty section coming into the start-finish to attack. Um, he's so arrow, has such a low CDA, uh, frontal drag area, that when he goes, A, he's fast. He's traveling quick because he's strong and arrow, but it also means that you can't draft off of him. There's no draft to be had. So he attacks on this high speed, high speed section going into the start finish. Lutsenko is the only one that reacts quickly enough to get like whatever of the little tiny draft there is he can get in the draft. But Evanipol just, he knows what his strengths are. He knows he's hard to draft off, off of. So he waits until a high speed section to attack. I thought this was like a really good um, decision from him and shows 
just how savvy he's getting. Um, I, that was my knock on him for like the last few years. I didn't think he quite got racing, but this was like a racer's racer's move. You know, I think it showed a lot. Um, and then a key detail here is Lutsenko Bridge is up to him, uh, probably given everything he has to get up there and hang on his wheel. And the gap's not big. It's maybe five, 10 meters. But a key thing is Samuela Batista or Batistella is on the front of the peloton. Italian rider, you think, well, what does he have to do with Evan Apollo Lutsenko, who's from Kazakhstan? He's on Lutsenko's trade team, Astana. He does not want to pull back his trade teammate. Um, these guys are loyal to their, to like who pays their bills, not what country they're from. So he's looking around. He's thinking, well, someone's got to get on the front pole because I'm not going to pull my teammate back. That gives him just enough hesitation, just enough of a gap to turn that five meter gap into minutes. You know, by the time 25K to go, by the time he attacks Lutsenko on Mount Pleasant, they have like, I think it's over a minute on on that group and then so he attacks Litsenko at 25.7k to go i feel really silly because when Litsenko went with him i think it's like well this is a problem i mean what's he going to do about alexi he's a strong rider he's quick he could beat him in a sprint we're watching cabrelli mug him all over again at the european championships last year no he attacks him on mount pleasant in one kilometer he has nearly a minute on Litsenko. that's how hard Litsenko has dropped he has a minute 15 on the breakaway group and two minutes over two minutes on the peloton i mean it is game over and he looks strong so the rest of the race from here on out is not worth talking about um the peloton van art had a few attacks they're kind of awkward actually where like well, well what are you doing your, your teammates up solo and you're attacking stirring the pot behind um this might be weird if evanapol watches this race back and say hey buddy what, what were you doing back there but i guess van art always has the excuse of oh i didn't know what was going on maybe you were dropped from the break we don't have race radios. I have to cover my bases back here. Um, but the uh, consequence of that is I think Van Aert used a little more energy. You use more energy than everyone else. They get to the sprint. Christophe Laporte wins it. Pretty impressive sprint for Laporte. Uh, Michael Matthews gets third, which I, th- I think is a really good result for him. You know, I thought this course was going to be too hard for him. So to get third, um, that, that's about as good as you can ask for, in my opinion, for him. Because even if Evanapol doesn't go, it's not like this group comes to the line like it did. The race, if, the, if this group was at the front and the win would have been on the line, it would have been harder and they wouldn't have had a reduced sprint in the manner that they did. So um, Van Ark gets fourth. I think one of the big beneficiaries of the Evanapol move was Peter Sagan, who got seventh uh, without he didn't leave the saddle in the sprint, which shows how tired he was. Um, if this race was hotter, was more popping in the last 20K, I think Sagan would not have been able to stay in that group. But that's still saying something, considering like Biniam Gourmet, who, who we know is a really good rider, was dropped from that group. Um, Julian Alaphilippe, who even, even though undercooked, is still good, was dropped. So really impressive ride from Sagan, in my opinion. Shows he, he maybe has something left for 2023. All right, so we get Evanapol winning. France gets second with Laporte. Australia third with Mac, Michael Matthews. Pretty good result for Australia, in my opinion. But let's just back up really quick. What was France thinking here? Like, what is the outcome that they desire? Um, if Evanapol's not here, you still have Van Art. Like, why are you making the race so hard from so far out? Especially since your leader, Julian Alaphilippe, we know is kind of out of shape. We saw him at the Volta. Um, he cr- then crashed the Volta, missed more training. So an easier race would help him, not a harder race. And then you have Pavel Sivakov, who had some of the best legs I've ever seen him have. You know, and he, if we go back to San Sebastian, which I think was the last day of July or maybe maybe July 30th or something like that, not that long ago, 
Um, Sivakov was actually pretty good. I mean, he was the only rider not to get totally blown out of the water by Evanipol in those final climbs. Matched him pretty well. Got second in that race. You know, that's a rider I would have had in the peloton and say, you're on Evanipol duty. Whatever. When Remco pisses, you piss. When Remco eats, you eat. You sit on his wheel. When he attacks, give everything you can to stay with him and never pull. Just stay right into his wheelbase. Get any draft you can and know that there's help coming from behind. You know, just hold on as long as you can and know that there's help coming. Because if Evanipol has to pull by himself, maybe, just maybe, we can slow him down enough where we can get help from another team. We can convince another team to chase him down, like Australia. Same thing with O'Connor. I mean, so good. Why is he up the road in that break? Everyone knows these breaks at Worlds are not serious. I mean, that's great for Scott McGill. Like, ride of a lifetime, um, frankly, um, shows that he is like a world tour, has a world tour engine. He's not going to win this race from the break. Um, maybe you, if it was a flatter course like Cutter, you could latch on to the front group as they come by. But you're not going to be able to do that on this course. So the fact that Plapp and O'Connor were up in that move, it, it, frankly, it kind of felt like trade team thought brought into international racing where, yes, in a, in a race like Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, you want strong riders in that move, but not at Worlds. you know. And, and I think O'Connor and Plapp could have done some damage if they were fresher when Evanipol went. You know, I think they could have been in that Evanipol move. So, And then France to work. Once I, I like, I actually like the attack. France made the winning move in this race um, with 75k to go. The problem is they brought Evanipol with them. You know, as soon as they saw he was in that move, they should have sat up. Um, somewhat inexcusable, in my opinion. I mean, you can say, well, your hindsight's 2020, whatever. Um, you don't know what you're talking about. And frankly, that might be true because what if, what if Evanipol's on a bad day? You know, maybe they win out of this. But the problem is, did they not watch the Vuelta? Did they not watch the time trial? Evanipol is on the form of his life. Evanipol is so strong right now. The evidence is there. It's staring us right in the face. So if they, I think they kind of looked at that evidence and ignored it and just raced like they wanted to race. You know, Tommy Vokler's there, their director. He's calling the shots for them. Yeah, this felt like this felt a little bit like machismo. <laughs> just like I, we are French. We are strong. We will ride them off our wheel. Did not feel like tactical, strategic thinking. Um, I would have shelled up. You know, it's it's uh, you could call it a coward's move, but in my opinion, international racing. Same thing with international football. Actually, shelling up and, and like non-creative play tends to win the day. I um, mean, that's exactly what Belgium did. You know, Belgium was so smart; they were just covering moves, shelling up back in the peloton, doing as little as possible. You know, there's no like medal for for valor here for looking like wow you you brought the race to them you get a medal it's like no one cares the people who win in international racing are the people who you don't see you know until the move happens you know you get one or two strikes in these races and you have to make them count um you know think about Evanipol. he didn't he didn't even make that front group when it split on mount kira he was just saving his powder until this move was 75k to go and then once that happened, you know, the, the table was set for his win and he knew it. So I just would not have, I would have done that a different way if I was France. You know, just keep everyone back, play off of Evanipol. The, the onus should have been on Belgium to make this race. And in, in, in reality, Belgium didn't have to make the race. The race was made for them. Huge mistake, in my opinion. Also, shout out to Keegan Swinson on the U.S. I think he was the second American finisher in like 78th place. 
few minutes behind the uh, the Chase Group. Uh, I don't think that's going to like make a lot of headlines in the U.S., but in my opinion, his best race he's ever had. Um, finishing Worlds is so hard, unbelievably hard. So the fact that he could get a finish, he beat a lot of really good riders. Um, so that's a lot to be proud of. Uh, I, I'm impressed by Keegan's performance. And then particularly Scott, Scott McGill on the breakaway. That guy deserves a ride on, a, on at least a first or second division team. Um, it's really hard to do what he did. Um, and then one thing I'll talk about before we go is the Matthew Vanderpool disaster. Oh, my. Uh, this race missed Matthew Vanderpool. If Matthew, Matthew Vanderpool's here, I don't think Evanapol gets to do what he did. I have to imagine Vanderpool. I mean, he was strong. Apparently, he was putting out some of his best power numbers of all time in the mixed relay midweek. So we know he was fit. He was here in person. Maybe not quite so in mind. He couldn't quite make it all the way to race day, though, unfortunately. Um, he got in a fight with two teenage girls the night before the race. They were knocking on his door. You know, there's a few layers to the story. Um, apparently, he was sick, I guess, said he was sick. He was sleeping in his girlfriend's room, which was in like a general population part of the hotel and not with the team, which had like a private sequestered off area of the hotel. Frankly, I would just go with houses. Um, I don't know what these, I looked at the hotel is actually fairly affordable rates. Maybe that's why they did it, but just rent a luxury house. I mean, what are we doing here, people? Like there's a lot on the line. I mean, this is a great course for Vanderpool. You don't get many chances like this. So I don't totally understand why they decided to stay at a hotel instead of just trying to be in their own private space. But Vanderpool, uh, staying with his girlfriend, there's uh, young girls, like 13 and 14 years old, knocking on the door repeatedly. It's unclear if this is, they're knocking on every door in the hallway, what's going on, if they even know who he is, or if this is just, he's in the wrong place, wrong time. He runs out, waits for them to knock again, runs out, chases him into the room. The police report said he, yeah, pretty ugly police report, to be honest. Not a good look for Vanderpool at all. Um, was was basically attacking them, pinning them against the wall, screaming at them in the room, which is pretty unacceptable. Um, not okay. You know, you have to imagine this is going to haunt him for, for quite a while. Um, I don't think the fans will care so much in Europe, but sponsors might care. Um, this makes him much less marketable. Um, and apparently, there's a video, so this could be a big problem for him. Um, just morally, but also and from a marketing perspective. But you know, even going past that, you know, I feel a little bit silly saying like, "Well, you beat up a couple girls." You know, let's talk about something else. But obviously, that's bad. We want to say that's like unacceptable. You shouldn't do that. Um, you should be staying in your private area because your team probably thought about this and had a private floor of the hotel, which is exactly where you should be. Um, so, how did he get himself in this situation? Is a good question. And frankly, it shows a little bit of lack of focus and judgment. Um, I mean, you should not be staying with your, you should just be focused on the race. Like, why are you worried about staying with your girlfriend? Why is your girlfriend even there? I, the whole thing, the whole story doesn't really add up to me. I mean, he really just threw away a chance to win a world championships. And it's not like, oh, he just missed the worlds. And now he goes back to his normal life. You know, this is, this comes on a run of pretty disappointing racing for him. Um, you know, flash flashback to April. The guy's on top of the world. He just won Tour of Flanders. He is heading into the Giro, where he was quite good. Um, they only got one win, though. And I was thinking, like, oh, that's like a nitpick saying, oh, he like only got one win. But looking back, you know, that Giro was a turning point for him. Uh, he maybe he 
just his body was so shocked by doing its first great tour that he's been in a hole since then because he shows up to the Tour de France, one of the biggest riders in the world at the biggest race in the world. You, you want to be good for that. And frankly, it's, it's, you don't often see stars, superstars show up to races like of that caliber, just not be good. And he was not good. You know, he had no power. He was not himself. He was never in contention for any type of win at that race. Frankly, he didn't do anything that, that affected racing in any way. So that's a, that's not a good look for him. Um, normal riders all the time show up and just can't affect the race, but superstars don't. So the, the tour was bad. And, and frankly, as Van Aert dominated that tour, Vanderpool's star fades. You know, you start to think about him less. You start to hear about him less. You know, he was winning small races leading into Worlds. But while that's happening, Evanapol, 22 years old, emerging superstar, is just dominating at the Vuelta. And then he wins Worlds. And now we're, you know, we're not talking about Vanderpool so much. You, you wonder, like, with these judgment errors frankly, unforced errors on his part. You know, is this a little bit of like a loss of focus, some self-sabotage, a meltdown? I don't quite know what's going on, but I'm curious to watch how he handles this and how he comes out in 2023. You know, he needs to come out like guns blazing in 2023 because this could easily turn into, um, you know, Tom Bonin's situation actually was seemed more fun and innocent in retrospect, but Boonin was, was a big star on top of the world. He had a few cocaine positive tests, uh, partying too much, losing a little bit of focus. And he, he was able to write the ship, but it took years for him to do it. And, and that's the danger here. You just, as a superstar of this caliber, you have a few bad moments, a few bad races, and you can, you can get into a slide, like an uncontrollable slide. Um, it sounds odd because you think, well, this is unrelated to racing. He, he showed up fit, not a problem. He's going to win the next 15 races he does. But, you know, the mental affects the physical. And this is a lot of distractions for Vanderpool. You know, this is all we're going to be talking about in regards to him for the next few months. And if this is the last race he does of the year, that's just going to be sticking on him for months and months and months. It's going to be very hard for him to get back to normal, which is going to make it very hard to get back to focus on racing. So, no, this is a this is a disaster for Vanderpool, really. I I thought it was a little underplayed by the media. Like, oh yeah, we could. Who who hasn't been mad when kids are knocking on their door? And that is annoying, but you have to handle that better. And frankly, don't be there. Be where you're supposed to be with the team. And this doesn't happen. It doesn't matter who's wrong or right. He screwed up his race and blew a golden opportunity to win worlds. That's all that matters here, really. It doesn't matter if. They were annoying him. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that's all that matters. I mean, um, him abusing children matters as well. But I think it takes him potentially having some type of moral high ground that his fans and the media tend, seem to think he has. And, and I would say makes that irrelevant. Like, who cares if they were being annoying? You have a job to do. You, you, you can't afford to get into a fight with kids in their hotel room. It's unexcusable. So... The fact that he thought that was a good idea is, is a big concern for me. So one thing we'll ask before we go is, does Remco Evanapol win every race from now on? Is this just it? He's, he's the new guy. Um, he's going to win the Giro. He's going to win the Tour. He's going to win the Vuelta. He's going to win every monument. He's going to win the World Championships. He's going to win Paris Olympics. It might seem like that right now, but you want to keep in mind that, A, he is on the form of his life, um, and he is so, so skinny. And with the amount of power he has and his aero positioning, he's hard to stop in this current form. 
he will not be in this current form forever, especially these wins are going to make his offseason very busy and very distracting. You know, I wouldn't actually, I would not be surprised if he comes into 2023 a little bit undercooked um, and we start to see kind of those sophomore struggles a little bit. Um, and the tour is like its own separate beast. Uh, if he can convince his team to let him race the tour, I think that's going to be a lot of attention on him. That's going to be a lot of pressure. So before we write off Pogacar and Van, Van, sorry, Pogacar and Van Art as just washed and they're never going to win anything again, um, I'd give it a few months. Um, and, and this way of racing, you know, at some point people will realize, hey, don't let him get in that move. Let's close that down. Let's not work with him in this move. You know, you see this happen to um, to Cancellara, to Sagan, and it gets harder and harder to replicate your success. But that's not to take anything away from from what he's doing. He's doing things that you know I didn't think were really possible. And in regards to his long range moves, the guys cracked the code a little bit. Um, I think there is maybe some. It's like Euro logic. Uh, I can't attack from 50k out. It's impossible. It's like, well, I can I can reverse engineer those efforts in training, and I know that it's possible, and I can fuel myself during the race to be able to do it. So um, that's not impossible for me. And and I applaud this like new movement where riders don't sit around and wait for the race to happen. Just get ahead of the race, and if you're strong, you're gonna win. <laughs> you're not, you know, if he sits and waits. Closer to the finish, who knows? You know, maybe Lutsenko can can hold on to him for 20k. He can't hold on to him for 35k though. So yeah, I, I think Evanapol is is riding this wave extremely well. Um, he looks better than anyone. He, I think he is the strongest rider in the world at the moment. Quite literally, he won the world championships. But just across all disciplines, I think if the Tour started tomorrow, he would win the Tour de France. Um, he he's that good right now. Um, but stuff changes in, in pro cycling, and it, especially in modern pro cycling, things change so fast. I mean, think how unbeatable Pogacar seemed in, in June of last year, or June of this year, and now the guy can't buy a win in a major race to save his life. So stuff changes fast. Lombardia is in two weeks, less than two weeks at this point. Um, if Pogacar wins that, we're all talking about Pogacar. So it's just important to keep a level head. Evanapol will lose a race at some point. Um, but I am excited heading into 2023. I think he's going to be a great addition to the tour. I, I think after this win, it's impossible he does not start the tour. That's almost inexcusable to have a 23-year-old, which is pretty old in modern cycling, world champion, uh, one of the best Grand Tour riders in the world, and not take him to the tour. I think sponsors will put their foot down, uh, particularly specialized, if Patrick Lefebvre tries to stick to his word on that. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And we'll be back Friday with Andrew. So I recommend you stick around and listen to that when that comes up. All right. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks. Bye.